This is Gina Marie Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Jersey Arts Podcast. Today's episode is a little different than those previous, but you'll see why soon. First, I'd like to talk to you about acclaimed flamework artist, rather I should say flamework pioneer, Paul J. Stankard. Paul is an internationally acclaimed artist and pioneer in the studio glass movement. His lifelike nature-based glassworks have changed the paperweight world over his 40-year artistic career. Having begun his career working in scientific glassblowing, it was through this industry that he found creativity and learned he was indeed an artist. Now, it is important to note that he found himself on this vocational path due to struggles with standardized schooling. A later diagnosis of dyslexia helped to make sense of those struggles and led him down a path of creation. Learning differently is not learning incorrectly. He has since become an author in addition to his visual creations, having written four books and many poems inspired by his own idol, Walt Whitman. I'll admit, I may have overextended myself here. In my research, I was able to watch an early screening of the new documentary, Paul J. Stankard, Flower and Flame, and I was so moved that I had to speak with both Paul and his director, Dan Collins, about their new film. Which means you lucky listeners get a two-for-one this time around. It also means that I had to pick and choose what could make its way into this podcast. I had wonderful conversations with both gentlemen, but you will hear but a small portion of that. Hopefully just enough to wet your whistle so that you may discover this new documentary yourself. We begin with director Dan Collins as he explains what makes this film, and Paul, so special. Paul was such a sweetheart, and I I told you I loved this movie. I cried while watching it and that might be a me thing I don't know but I love seeing artists at work and I love I love watching other people's passion and it's just so you did a wonderful job of exhibiting that I'm gonna say if you had to pitch this film in as few words as possible how would you encourage audiences to see it why is this important for them to watch you might think you know what art is and what kind of art you like. But if you've never experienced what can be done with glass in terms of not only capturing a very realistic element of nature's beauty, you need to see this work. But beyond the sort of the nature that he's captured, the beauty of nature that he's capturing, there's something else. The work takes it a step further and there's an emotional response when you when you see this work in your you know either holding it in your hand or seeing it in a museum or seeing it on a theater screen you know um there's an emotional response to his creations that goes beyond his intent to just capture a beautiful nature scene um there's something in his work that is more than the sum of its parts and You know, I think the film through this incredible 4K technology and the close-up shots we have of his work, I think that's about as close as you can get to understanding it without holding it in your hand. So if you don't have the privilege to do that, this is probably as close as you can get. And if you've never experienced glass art like this before, um, I guarantee you it's going to blow your mind. Well said. I agree with that entirely. And like he says, uh, his labor is his prayer, right? And I think a lot of what you just said encapsulated that as well. It's you're capturing someone's oration on camera. Laborare est orare. Lamento mori. 
These are the words plastered on the wall of Stankard Studio. To labor is to pray. Remember, you must die. This is the motto of Benedictine monks, a motto that has inspired Stankard to continue creating. Hailing from an Irish Catholic family, faith and religion are very important to Paul, as is family and their support. Here, he tells me just how important family has been in the trajectory of his success. I taught my father-in-law how to do glass. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he loved it. It was a... Uh, he was a, a union uh, operating engineer, and he'd come home. A lot of times he was laid off, so he'd be in the garage playing with glass. He would make little animals. I told him how to, I showed him how to make the animals. And he, he said, I'm going to do a show in Lang City. It's the Indian Summer uh, uh, Art and Craft Show. And there was a juror named Reese Powell. Reese Powell was a, a dealer, porcelain dealer. He, he was... Uh, very, very successful uh, promoting and selling beam porcelains, Cebus porcelains. Trenton had this huge American porcelain activity. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. <laughs> oh, huge. So anyway, Reese Powell was a juror, and he was he was going past the um, the crafts, the artists, and the craftspeople's booths. And he came across, he came to my father-in-law and he saw this paperweight. And he said, uh, did you do this? He said, no, my, my son-in-law made it. He said, oh, this is very, very interesting. Have your son-in-law come and visit me at my gallery. So I went to, uh, I went down, Pat and I went down to Link City with the kids. We're going to let the kids swim on the beach. And then I walked over to see my father-in-law and he said, oh, there was a, the juror, one of the jurors, admired your work and wanted to see, wanted to uh, have you visit him in the gallery. So I didn't know Reese Powell, and I went into the gallery, and I, he, I said, I'm the, I'm the person, the glass person who made the paperweights. And he said, oh, you're very good. I'd love to have you exhibit some of your work in my gallery. And I said, well, that, that's nice. He said, we have a holiday holiday gathering and you could show your work on consignment here. It's a consignment. Oh, I don't know. I like to be, I'd like to sell them. <laughs> so see as well. And so I walked out thinking, you know, I, I wasn't gonna do it. That I was working at Roman House at the time. That Monday, uh, Fall came in and he, and he was talking and I told him about meeting this art dealer and they reached Pallia in Atlantic City. He said, you know, the Philadelphia Hunt, the Philadelphia magazine has a story about this man and his pictures on the cover. So I went and bought the magazine. I thought, oh my God, look at this. Oh, he's serious. He's a major player. So I called him up. I said, yeah, I'd like to do the show. And he sold the work and he took orders on it. So when I, um, I said, well, I'm doing this part-time. He said, part-time? You should be doing this full-time. I said, I don't think I can make a living at it. He said, I think you could, and I'll, I'll make sure you do. So that's when I asked Pat if I could quit my job and make paperweights. And uh, it worked out. He, Tally was, uh, uh, Tally became my, the, the studio's patron saint. So I told Reese, I said, Reese, you're my studio's patron saint. He looked over at 
one of his assistants, and he said, everybody should be a saint to somebody. <laughs> oh, that's great. And I feel like I'm hearing that this wouldn't have happened if not for your father-in-law. The paternal influence in his life was strong. While his father-in-law may have led to a chance meeting with the art dealer Reese Pally, it was his own father's exuberance for the world of science that led Paul to scientific glassblowing, paving the way for a talent to be born. But it was his wife Patricia, Pat, who provided the space and support to allow him to take a chance. It takes a village. So, a little backstory. I'm the second oldest of nine. My parents are both college educated. And being, uh, being educated was second only to being a good Catholic. <laughs> so I, so I, I had, uh, you know, the house, my, my siblings were all college bound and good grades and I was difficult grades. So I told the, uh, the, uh, Guidance counselor, I'd like to go, I think I'd like to go to vocational school. He gave me a brochure, Salem County Vocational Technical Institute in Salem City. So I'm looking at it and I said, you know, I think I'd love to be a machinist. So I came home, I told my dad, I said, Pop, we call I we called my dad Pop. I said, Pop, I'm thinking about going to vocational school and uh, becoming a machinist. He said, that's a good treat, son. So he opened up the brochure and he said, scientific glass blowing. Wow, that's what you want to be. He said, what do they do? He said, well, they make laboratory apparatus. And I, my dad was a chemist. And, and I used the laboratory glassware daily. And it's a good trade. I said, oh, okay. He got so excited about scientific glass blowing, he took me to, uh, we drove down to Salem City. I saw that I saw the students bending glass in a flame. I thought, wow. So I signed up the following September. This was in the spring of uh, 61. And I signed up uh, in September, 61. And I graduated in 63. So here's the kicker. I'm highly regarded in my world of class. I failed scientific class. <laughs> 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 I was not expecting. Well, that. I failed, and then and they and I had to go to the I had to go to the director's office, and he said, "Paul Stankard, I think you should leave Salem and join the army." I said, "I don't want to join the army. I want to be a glassblower." He may have failed once, but what's that saying? If at first you don't succeed, try and try again. Well, thankfully for the art world, Paul pursued his craft. He excelled in the industry for nearly a decade before leaving to dedicate himself to more artistic labors. Here I'll take you back to Dan Collins, director of the documentary that will give you far more information about the brilliance of Paul's work than I can in this podcast. It is work that behooves a visual counterpart. But until you are able to see the film, Dan and I discuss why this documentation of Paul's life in motion is so meaningful. I love that. And this might just be me because I, I recently lost my father. So when I, I view things now, obviously, it, it's with a different lens. But this will always be there for his children, his grandchildren, his family. And I love that you've preserved that for him. And that emotion is there and it's raw. And I loved hearing about him and Pat, you know, and that's the romantic in me, right? I love seeing uh, happy, healthy couples who've 
you know, gone the distance, so to speak. But uh, I love this film. You did such a great job with it. I keep saying that, but I will keep saying it because it's it's really good. It's good to hear. And it's good to hear from an objective voice. I mean, it means a lot to me. It's easy for people I know or for even Paul or Dave to say, wow, this is really great. But when you have no reason to know anything about it, and if, if you see it and it strikes you on an emotional level, um, I'm doing my job. Well, I mean, one of the biggest challenges I have is I've got to make a film that pleases glass experts, at least <laughs> mostly. You never mm -hmm. please everybody all the time. But right. I've also got to please people and, and reach people who know nothing about glass, who've never heard his name, who didn't even know that paperweights existed or the mm -hmm. art forms that Paul has evolved into exist. So if it strikes someone who has no reason to... Um, who's an objective viewer and it moves them um, like it has you, then I know that I'm, I'm kind of hitting the nail on the head, you know? I learned a lot. I guess the only thing I told Paul this too, the only thing I'd known about glasswork before was the phrase Venetian glass. That was basically the only thing I'd known. So to watch, to watch him actually make those orbs and the bouquets that they look like real flowers that somebody stuck in a ball of glass. You know, I have no idea how he does it, but it's so beautiful. One of the things that I take the most heart in in my work is when my instincts are kind of confirmed or reinforced. And so I went into this with a with a with an open heart, um, working with Paul in a way that I I I kind of opened myself up to him and and hoped he would return the favor and he did. And so I I'm struggling to think of like a like some epiphany that I learned, but but I found that the more I trusted my instincts and pursued um, the work we were doing from and from 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 a point of just kind of opening my heart up and being open to what he says and and not trying to manipulate what was going to happen or anything like that, that I was rewarded with these beautiful moments. Um, and because he was willing to do the same. So that that just tells me that, you know, if you, especially in documentary, when when you get somebody to trust you, as I hope he does, uh, and I think he does, you know, you will be rewarded with great material. And that means you will create a great emotional response in your audience. And, you know, one example in the film is there's this scene that uh, I love, which is towards the end where he's looking at his grandfather's tools. Um I love this. It's my favorite scene. And it was unplanned. Um, I knew the tools existed because he talks about them in his book. And so towards the very end of the production, one day we had finished filming his the last orb that we were working on. And we had some amazing morning where he was having this epiphany about his new orbs um, style in, within the Celestial Bouquet series. And I said something like, hey, at some point we should talk about your grandfather's tools. And he was like, wait right here. And he's exhausted, you know, he's been, he just made this orb and, and it's, you know, he's like dripping sweat and he runs across to his house and I'm sitting there and he comes back 20 minutes later with that box and he just plops it on the table. And I'm like, I think I said to him, I'm going to keep rolling. And he's like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And he sat down and that whole scene just unfolded like unplanned. And, you know, he got really emotional during the scene and, you know, the phone rings and, <laughs> And I'm going, I'm like crying and like trying to like keep my cool and not interrupt, you know. Um, so not only did he allow me to experience this like really personal moment with him, 
but like six months later when I showed him the rough cut of the movie, he hadn't, I didn't show him that scene. I didn't show him anything, you know, cause I I've learned not to do that. Um, that you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen <laughs> early on, no matter who they are. So when I finally showed him the rough cut and he saw that scene, you know, I was very aware that he might say, you got to cut that man. Like that is not for public consumption. And much to my surprise, he was like, he was like, wow. He was like, that's really personal. And I was like, do you want me to cut it? And he was like, no, that's like my favorite scene, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that's really generous. That, that scene has nothing to do with promoting his artwork or there's no self-serving, you know, reason to leave that scene in a film from any kind of a promotional standpoint. Do you know what I mean? Not that he's doing oh, yeah. it, but there, it, I think he just was struck by his own emotion at that moment. And I think, as you said earlier, he wants to share that with his family and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren who hopefully will see this film one day. And, um, you know, that took a lot of courage for him to, to be okay with that. So that kind of trust is probably the most rewarding part of this work for me, you know. Yeah, I was tearing up just listening to you talk about that scene. And of course, that was one of the ones that I cried at when I was watching. It's it's really nice to see people talk about their ancestors, I guess, and how much uh, they mean to us, even if we don't realize that in our waking conscious. But uh, he's such an open individual, and I could see that in my short interview with him as well. He's just such a a poet at heart, right? He said he started writing poetry recently too. And I feel like a poet would be that open and that raw. I'm just happy that he was willing to share that because it really, it was a beautiful story. The morning glory by my window satisfies me more than the metaphysics of books. Isn't that sweet? So I, I really started to be inspired by Whitman's words. And that uh, I wanted to make, I wanted to bring the depth of feeling through my interpretation or nature as Whitman was able to do with words. He has certainly succeeded in his endeavor to do so. Following in Whitman's footsteps, he has brought forth much emotion through his naturalistic creations. You can see the documentary, Paul J. Stankard, Flower and Flame, on February 24th at the Perkins Art Center in Collingswood. Standard ticket entry begins at 2 p.m., with a VIP option that includes a demonstration in the Glass Studio beginning at 1 p.m. For tickets and information about the screening, be sure to visit perkinsarts.org. For more information about the film itself, please visit flowerandflamefilm.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to review, subscribe, and tell your friends. A transcript of this podcast, links relevant to the story, and more about the arts in New Jersey can be found at jerseyarts.com. The Jersey Arts Podcast is presented by Art Pride New Jersey, advancing a state of creativity since 1986. The show was co-founded by and currently supported by funds from the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, with additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Gina Marie Rodriguez. Executive producers are Jim Atkinson and Isaac Cernadiaz. And my thanks to both Dan Collins and Paul Stankard for speaking with me. I'm Gina Marie Rodriguez for the Jersey Arts Podcast. Thanks for listening.